served with moolah. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Gabby Dunn here, America's deadbeat sweetheart. Let's do this. Recently, I've been hearing from a lot of you about your money stories. Thanks, by the way, to everyone who's written to me at badwithmoneyatslate.com. Please keep those coming. They've been so moving and wonderful. And listening to all of your voices has been, I just love it. And I was almost going to tweet about how I was crying about it. So many of you have told me that this podcast has made you think about the ways that you can be more financially responsible. I myself am only starting to understand how these conversations have changed me. I certainly feel more financially responsible than I ever have. But here's the question. When we say that we're being financially responsible, who or what are we responsible to? The easy answer is ourselves, obviously. By taking a careful and introspective look at our emotions and behaviors around money, we enable ourselves to have more fulfilling and less stressful lives. And that's great. Today, however, we're going to take a look at the not-so-easy answers to that question. That's right, friends. It's time once again to sound the Carrie Wade queer feminist anti-capitalist alarm. Because today, on Bad With Money, we're talking about the system. The system. We're going to do this in two parts. First, we'll talk about the ways the banking system takes advantage of its customers and some steps we can take to hold them accountable. See what I did there? Accounts. Accountable. I'm a comedian. For that conversation, I'll be joined by Elisa Servan, whose book, The Unbanking of America, tells the story of how the financial industry became so toxic and challenges us to empower ourselves as financial consumers, rather than just doing whatever the bank tells us to because they're holding our money hostage. After that, I'll talk to Nicole Ashoff, the managing editor of Jacobin Magazine and author of The New Profits of Capital. Nicole asks an even more provocative question. Does our capitalist financial system even make sense anymore? So let's talk to Lisa Servan. She says that many of our basic assumptions about how the financial system we rely on functions are just plain wrong. Everyone needs financial services um, and hopefully safe and affordable financial services in order to function well in the economy and in civil society. And increasingly so as we move farther and farther away from cash. The problem is that uh, it's getting harder and harder to get those safe, affordable services from a bank, if, particularly if you don't have a lot of money to begin with. So people are looking to other places in order to get access to financial services. And there's no widespread kind of one place where you can go and say like, okay, I know that if I use these products and services, I'm going to be treated well. You know, I I actually shop at a food co-op in Brooklyn. And part of the reason I do that is because I know that the people who work there and who buy the food are kind of crazier about food and what's in it than I am. So if I go there, I kind of know, like, I don't have to think too much about the the milk or the eggs or the meat, because I know that they've done a good job of doing their research. But we don't have the equivalent of that for, for financial services, where you kind of can say, like, all right, I know if I go here, um, everything's going to be good. Now, the credit union is probably the closest thing to that. But there's no one place where you can go and feel like you can trust it. It would never have occurred to me to not put stuff in a bank. However, like there were times where I really didn't have enough money to be doing that. Right. But I think um, it's very hard to operate only in the cash economy, Um, especially now. You know, there are many places where they won't even take cash. You have to use a credit card or something. And in order to get a credit card, you often have to have a bank account or show your assets. So um, 
So there are reasons why it makes sense to do it, although I think we're in this situation right now where so many people don't have enough money to keep a minimum balance or to wait for a check to clear or something like that, and banks are making less sense. So what does it mean to not be able to afford a bank account? And is it just you can't afford the minimum amount that's in there? And is this like just a cycle that people can't get out of? That's part of it. So um, in general, the monthly minimum balance that you have to keep in a bank in order to get free checking has gone up. So, you know, if you need to keep a few thousand dollars in the bank in order to get free checking, um, we know that more than half of all Americans could not come up with $2,000 in the event of an emergency. So if that's true, that means they don't have $2,000 in their bank accounts. And um, if their balance drops below, then they're paying for banking. The other way that that comes in, it's not like a direct cost, but when people have a check that they deposit into their account, it often takes several days to clear and people can't afford to wait for that money. So in Mm -hmm. other words, if they go to a check casher, They're getting that money right away, and they're paying to get it. But they may say, you know what, if I don't get my money right now, and I have to wait from Friday to Wednesday for it to clear at the bank, then when I go to pay my bills, or when I go to the grocery store, um, I'm going to overdraw my account. And that charge, the overdraft charge is going to be a lot more than what I paid at the check casher. Right. The overdraft charge is like 30 to $35, and yeah. the check casher is like $2 or something. Yeah. The check casher, where I worked, um, I worked as a teller, as you probably know, in the South Bronx mm-hmm. at a check casher. And the charge there, it differs from state to state, but the charge was 1.95% of the face value of a check. So, you know, a $100 check, it would be $2 um, mm-hmm. about. So that, that $35 that you're paying at your bank for an overdraft, you're paying that whether you wrote a $500 check that bounced or whether you got a $5 cup of coffee at Starbucks. One of the things that feels deeply incongruous to me about the culture around money and financial literacy is the shame that we're taught to feel about being in debt or not being able to afford to keep ourselves afloat independently. But um, it seems like the entire banking system relies on us being in debt in order to maximize their profits from overdraft fees or interest or stuff. Is that like an accurate perception? You know, I think it's definitely true that it's harder and harder to stay afloat. And we have, uh, you know, we have this mentality. I think we think when we think of the American dream, and if I were to ask my parents, uh, and even myself, you know, what was the American dream for for them? Well, they thought my parents were both teachers, so they, they didn't have extraordinarily high paying jobs, although they had secure jobs, they would have said, we want to be able to buy a house. We want to ma- ma- make sure we can save for retirement. And we want to send you and your two sisters to college. And they mm-hmm. could do that, right? So now we're in a situation, though, if you ask two teachers, certainly in a place like New York City, where I live, can you do those things? It would, it's, it's, it's much more out of reach. And yet we kind of perpetuate that as the realistic goal. So when people are getting out of college and they're mired in debt, or they're thinking about making plans and they think like, wow, it's going to be like 10 years before I feel like I'm stable or I've been working for five years and I'm still surviving paycheck to paycheck or I have, you know, all this credit card debt. The Oftentimes the response is to feel embarrassed, to feel shame, to feel as though somehow it's their fault. And yes, it is to some extent true to go back to the other part of your question that there are a lot of practices that are designed by banks with the sole purpose of making money off of consumers. 
Some of them are illegal, uh, but they're also ones that are, are legal, but not necessarily happening or designed with the best interests of the customer or the consumer in mind. So I think it's really important for people to look at the difference between what's legal and what's ethical. You talked about, um, what was the thing that you talked about on Fresh Air that was... Debit uh, resequencing, maybe? That one really yes, gets my goat. Yes, it blows my mind. I had no idea that they were doing... Can you explain a little bit yeah, about what Yeah, for sure. Is? So um, it's probably best if I just go through an example. So let's mm-hmm. imagine that you have $100 in your bank account. It's Monday morning. You have put in... You've told your bank... Uh, on auto pay to pay your phone bill for $75. You uh, go to the grocery store and you spend $125 there, use your debit card, and you also write a check to your landlord for $500. And let's imagine that all of those charges hit your account on the very same day. So what's the bank going to do? They could put the $75 charge first, which would clear because you have $100 in your account. And you would then end up paying two overdraft fees for those other two charges, which would overdraw your account. What banks do, though, is they use a software program that reorders those charges to put them the highest one first. So if the $500 landlord check hits your account first, you overdraft then. Then the $125 grocery charge goes you overdraft goes again, then you overdraft again. again. So they're making three charges instead of two. And that is baked into the system, which, again, I say is like, it's legal, but is it ethical? Absolutely not. So I think a lot of listeners to this show are living paycheck to paycheck. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's the case, are, is a bank the best option for them? Or is there something else that is a better option? As a rule, credit unions will charge you less than a bank will. So on average, people pay less in terms of annual fees at a credit union than a bank. Um, so it's it's one good idea is for people to actually check out whether there are credit unions in their area that they can belong to. And also, um, even if it's not in your area, maybe it's in your hometown, but you don't live there anymore, a lot of credit unions are now reimbursing people for ATM fees if you go out of network. And we all know that it's much easier to bank online and that you don't actually go into the actual building of the bank very often. Um, there are also yeah, and you can get those. So like if you're worried that there's not a lot of ATMs for this small bank that you're working with or the small credit union, they'll reimburse you. So it, you can use the bigger banks, ATMs that are more plentiful, but they'll give you the money back. So it's not actually detrimental to you. That's right. Community banks sometimes are good, too. There's there are community development banks in particular. Part of their mission is really to serve people um, well in a transparent way and provide safe, affordable services. So they're not looking to max. They're looking to be profitable, but not to maximize their profit. Um, I actually have a button on my website that says how to leave your bank. So if you go to hmm. lisaservon.com, you can actually click on that. And there are a number of resources that show you how to find a credit union near you. Um, there's a site I really like called nerdwallet.com that will compare check accounts and other kinds of financial services. And so unfortunately, it's not like a very easy answer and there's no one size fits all, but there are these tools that can help people figure out whether it makes sense to leave their bank. So you worked uh, at a payday loan place and you also worked at a check cashing place um, in research for your book. Uh, so You got to know the people that were going in and using these services. And I think there's like a misconception that people with low incomes are people with low levels of education. And that's why they're taken in by these things or that there's not really any rational reason for them to be using these services. And I loved the quote that you said that um, I knew that people who don't have a lot of money know where every penny goes. 
Um, can you talk about that a little bit in your experience as working in those places? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that kind of knowledge of feeling like lower income people and, you know, it's important to say at some point that it's not just low income people who use these services. But that's that's how I entered. That's I the am- perception. Yes. And the other part is that, you know, they don't know any better. And there's sort of this implicit voice saying kind of, well, if they if they only acted like me, middle class white woman with a college education, then they'd make a better decision. And having worked in low-income communities, not necessarily on financial services, but with other on other projects, I, I did know that people who don't have very much tend to make rational decisions. And um, what I found was that when people came to the check casher, they, uh, they were making decisions that fit their situation, uh, and they found that the check casher was less expensive, more transparent, and gave them better service. And so I really tried in my book to kind of shift the conversation away f- from just looking at the businesses and looking at how much they charged to looking at the actual consumers and what their options were. And when you look at it that way, the whole lens changes. You don't necessarily, the answer doesn't come out being, wow, we need to get these people into bank accounts. But to me, how do we provide the kinds of tools that will help people be financially healthy? How do we make sure that everyone has access to safe, affordable financial services? I grew up um, going to the bank with my dad when I was a kid. And so and it did feel like a community space. It, it was like the post office or the butcher that we would run into people that we knew. The tellers always knew us. We went in pretty much every week. Um, now people hardly ever I don't know if, if you can remember the last time you went to a teller window. I, I can't really I couldn't tell you what month it was or how long ago right. it was. I know I go in a couple times a year. Um, and so, while <laughs> I have to because I have to go once a month because I paid my rent late too many times. And so I have to get a money order from the bank because okay. my landlord doesn't trust me. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, there you go. Um, I think that's part of it is the is the relationships. Now, you know, it does make sense to some extent that banks are providing and prefer us to use their ATMs and their online services. It certainly costs them a lot less. And for Mm -hmm. many of us, you know, for me, I like doing my banking online and not always having to make another stop at the bank. Um, But there's another side of that change, and that is that those relationships have been lost. Whereas at the check casher, people come in sometimes every week, sometimes every two weeks, sometimes more than once a week. That is the business model of the check casher. My boss, Joe Coleman, at the check casher would say, banks want one customer with a million dollars and check cashers want a million customers with one dollar. What do you say to people who view it as predatory? If you really look at the numbers for check cashing, I kind of came around to feeling like check cashing for sure wasn't so predatory. And I think a lot of even the consumer advocates who look at it have come to that conclusion as well. Um, the charges are relatively low. People come in to do a few things. They they cash checks, they pay their bills, and mm-hmm. they get money orders. And the money orders at a check casher cost less than they do at the post office. Hey, Maybe Lynn. I should be getting my rent from there. <laughs> you probably could. <clears throat> you could. It's 89 cents. I don't know how much you pay for your... Um, what? Yeah, It's 89 cents to get a money order at one of those places? Yeah. Well, at least where it's I work. It's $10 at the bank. Wow. So you're paying $10 extra in rent every month. Yeah. Wow. So you should definitely um, do a little comparison shopping. Um, I wanted to ask a bit because, you know, it's Trump's America now. Um, I wanted to ask about deregulation because I read all these very scary things about how he wants to make that a top priority. 
What would the effect of that be on the average person? And is it better for banks to be regulated? Um, yeah, and we do have a lot of regulation. Um, Dodd-Frank is the most recent financial legislation that tries to curtail some of the bad practices of banks also created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which the CFPB, which I think all of your listeners should know about. um, And the CFPB has saved billions of dollars um, for millions of Americans who've been wronged by bad financial practices. You can actually call them and say like, hey, this is what's going on. and, And they will track it down and investigate. They also take on these big cases like some of your listeners might know about the Wells Fargo case last fall, where Wells Fargo as a bank was found to be opening false accounts for people who didn't want them and charging them lots of money. And this was happening on a very, very large scale. So the CFPB is the agency that will come after them. There's a huge risk, I think, right now with Trump as president that the CFPB will either be made ineffective by removing a lot of their funding or it'll go away altogether. And deregulation will come back in allowing banks to do even more than they're allowed to do in order to profit. And that deregulation is what led to all this fee income and all kinds of other bad practices that banks have engaged in. And if we get more deregulation, we're going to see more trouble for consumers. Next up, my conversation with Nicole Ashoff. As I mentioned, Nicole is the managing editor of Jacobin Magazine which looks at political, cultural, and economic issues from a socialist perspective. I know socialism is a loaded term, but don't worry, guys. This isn't the episode where I reveal my secret agenda to convert you all into dreadlocked radicals and trick you into moving to my commune. That's another episode. God, I wish I had a commune. But it is the episode where, with Nicole's help, we ask some very challenging questions about the financial gospel that a lot of us have accepted, without pausing to question it. A lot of this podcast is me asking possibly the dumbest questions I could ask. Uh, So will you explain just capitalism and then also explain why people like it so much? Okay. So capitalism, I think we can just think about it very systematically, right? It's a social system in which, you know, we have these kinds of relationships with each other, but the sort of underlying kind of logic of of the system is that, you know, corporations have to make a profit in order to survive, and ordinary average people have to sort of s- to, to sell their ability to work, right? They have to work for a wage in order to survive. Right? And it's sort of, we can think about it as a voluntary system, right? We're not sort of coerced into working, except maybe the very poorest people. And we don't sort of organize our lives around, all right, I want to make the absolute most amount of money and I'm going to choose my life path, you know, in order to do that. Some people do. Some people Most do, people yeah. don't, right? Some people do, but most people don't. And this is because there are other values in society besides just this, you know, desire to make a profit. But the weird thing is that the profit motive is the sort of preeminent overriding kind of organizing force that impacts all the other spheres of our life. So it's just a system that kind of feeds into itself, like it's a snake eating its own tail? Kind of, yeah, definitely. And we can think about it, you know, as sort of spreading over time, right? So sort of bringing things into the marketplace. So it used to be that spheres like education and the family and our personal interactions with each other were all sort of squarely outside the market, right? We didn't think about those as spaces where capital might be trying to, like, make a profit. We just thought about 
here's a big industrial company, let's say Ford, and they're making these cars, and people work there, and then we buy them, right? And that's sort of industrial capitalism, and that's how we think about it. I think if we think about a company like Facebook right now, we can really get a sense of the ways in which capitalism has changed, and it gets just sort of weirder and weirder. Because it's something that's like such a part of our social interactions, and it's a company? Yeah. So, I mean, purportedly, right, it's free, and it sells itself as a sort of space for us to talk to our friends and family and share news and ideas and, you know, you know, jokes and all of this. And, it's, and it sort of presents itself as just an extension of our social sort of spheres that already exist. And in many ways it is, right? But the weird, you know, the weird element of it is, is that Facebook makes its money through advertising and it exists as a corporation to make its money through selling access to us, to advertisers. And so you might say, well, okay, well, who cares? Like, whatever. But that gets weird, right? For example, Facebook has this policy where you have to use your real name, quote unquote, real name, right? And if you don't, you don't get to be on Facebook. Well, this is a problem for a lot of people, right? So LGBTQ people, a lot of them don't want to use their real name on Facebook for a variety of reasons, including personal safety and, you know, they're exploring their identity. And, you know, Facebook's not okay with that because the underlying sort of, uh, you know, motive for the entire platform that they've set up is to make a profit. So it gets it gets very weird. And, and you see these weird collisions between, you know, sort of the social aspects of our lives and this kind of desire and demand for making a profit. So many things have become corporations that it's almost impossible to to avoid that sort of thing. Or like you're just like in this system and there's not and you don't ever really think of a way to exist outside of it. Yeah. You know, if you think about it in a structural sense, I don't think even that sort of like CEOs and capitalists are bad people. I think they operate in a system that is designed in a certain way. Now, this isn't to say that we shouldn't try to change it. It's to say that when we call people greedy or bad, that kind of makes it seem like they can just be less greedy or bad and the system will be better. And that's not true. Right. Uh, We were talking a lot about banks um, with another woman that I interviewed. And uh, she was saying that banks used to be kind of mom and pop businesses and that it was like part of your town and everyone knew each other. And now the bank wants to make profit and doesn't really care about your... Yeah. And I think, I mean, and that's definitely sort of a historical shift, uh, which we, you know, which we often sort of characterize by this big word financialization. And the reason why that is the case is that there used to be a lot of regulations on banks and they were set up to be much closer to kind of like a public utility. Right. Which is basically like we know you need to save your money and we know sometimes you need to borrow some money and it shouldn't be this opportunity for us to rake you over the coals and make a bunch of profit off of you. Right. It should just be a service that we offer. Maybe we'll make a tiny bit of money, uh, but it's really something that's geared toward meeting people's need for credit and this kind of thing. And that's that's dramatically different today. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about financialization and about how it it happened? Sure. I mean, it's a big word and it's kind of a mouthful. So I think there's a few different ways that you can think about it. One is if you situate it kind of in a bigger historical arc. So, for example, the case of the banking industry, right? Like what happened and why did that happen to change it into the kind of, you know, 
behemoth Wall Street sort of evil, greedy people that we see in the movies today. Capitalism is not just a system that exists by itself, right? It exists within states, and it's and the market and the marketplace is organized by the state, right? The U.S. government. You know, if you look at the the years following World War II, we had a very stable kind of banking system and global trade and currency and all the stuff was very stable because it was super regulated, right? Um, in response to the Great Depression and, and World War II and all the kind of suffering that caused. So we set up this super regulated system and, you know, bankers didn't make a lot of money, but sort of everyone was participating. But what you start to see in the 1960s and 70s is sort of an increasing crisis amongst capitalists, um, both in the United States and abroad. You have a bunch of companies, uh, you know, competing with each other, profits are going down, and you also have a lot of sort of political and social unrest, right? We can think about the 1960s, certainly, um, and, and, and kind of link this in. They're all linked together. By the 1970s, you know, you have the oil crises. We're in a big sort of uh, mess, and, and, and the governments aren't really sure what to do. So one of the things that the United States uh, government does is starts to bend to pressure to sort of deregulate the banking sector. People are starting to say, look, you know, and deregulate the financial sector. They're saying one of the reasons we're in this kind of period of stagnation is we need less regulations and you need to give us more opportunities to, you know, make profits. And we see over time, it's this dramatic kind of shift to what we today think about as the global financial system, right? So we have this kind of global stock market. We have all these new financial products, which are very confusing, but very profitable, so like futures and all these new assets that we can buy uh, and swaps, right? We have all these kinds of things. Uh, and we create this kind of, you know, deregulated uh, to some degree, kind of single world market for money and credit, right? So we have this new sort of super high speed financial system that gets set up um, where banks are really able to do pretty much whatever they want, right? Which gets us into big crises like the 2007, 2008 financial crisis. And so people like it because they are able to make money and then people who are not making money like it because they think they feel that it's aspirational, well, I don't think your average sort of person is thinking about financialization in the sense that, well, the government made all of these changes uh, and and is it helping me or not? I think they're experiencing it more in the kind of, uh, you know, sort of everyday sense. So one of the weird things that happens, um, in, especially starting in the 1990s, as a result of all this sort of deregulation and, and new sort of financial products is that people get access to credit, right, in a way that they never had before. And this is a double-edged sword. So, you know, we have sort of decades of stagnating and declining wages in the midst of rising housing, education, and healthcare costs, right? So how do people deal with this? Well, they take out loans, right? They use credit to buy things. Well, this wasn't always the case. Like, average, ordinary people didn't always have access to this kind of credit. So this is something that's very new. But it also creates a situation of, of like, massive indebtedness. I mean, do you think people now, because of Trump's ties to business and all that, like, are are going to pay attention more to the ways that, like, business is tied into government and government is profiting. I don't know. I can't I can't imagine a situation where somebody likes this system. Yeah. But maybe no. now they're going to hate it more. 
Um, I think, and it, this has been this has been coming since the financial crisis. I think that that was a, you know millions of people lost their homes, uh, millions of people lost their retirement savings that were tied up with the stock market, millions of people lost their jobs as companies downsized. I think that was a real shock to people, and they weren't happy with the kind of solution, which was just let's pump trillions of dollars into the banking sector and save the banks. But then people rioted to do Occupy Wall Street, and then everyone made fun of them. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. Everybody did make fun of them. And Occupy, we sort of look back now and say, well, I don't know, they didn't really do anything. But the Occupy movement and also, you know, globally in terms of like the Arab Spring and then, you know, it really actually started... Uh, a kind of new dialogue. And really, I think now if we look back, we can really see it as a kind of shift, particularly amongst younger people who, ex- you know, experience they're in their 20s, they're they're saddled with debt, you know, when Occupy happens. And all of a sudden they're saying, wait a minute, this system is totally stacked against me. I played by the rules. I studied hard. I went to college. I took out all these loans like you told me to. And now I'm working at Starbucks and I can't pay off my debt and I'm moving back in with my parents. The way you're telling me what's going on, I can't imagine why in 2008 didn't everyone riot? Is it because of shame? Is it because they lose their house, they lose their job, whatever it is, and then they think, well, this is a failing on my part, this is my fault? And then when people do riot, they're labeled entitled. Is this just like, this is all feeding into like keeping us at the status quo, and that benefits the people at the top. I'm like literally sitting here like putting together, you know, on Homeland where they like put strings to (laughs) pictures? (laughs) Like I'm freaking out right now. All right, well, don't freak out. But you're totally right. So part of it is the way, and this is, you know, if we use big, if we want to freak you out even more, we can use big, scary words like ideology, right? Like what is the ideology that underpins capitalism? Well, one of the things that it does is it tries to make people's personal struggles totally personal, right? So I have to declare bankruptcy because I can't pay my medical bills and And I'm I'm going to lose my house. And I'm ashamed because I somehow didn't make all the perfect individual choices to prevent that from happening. Well, if it was just one person, right, and this is the sort of what C. Wright Mills, the famous sociologist, always says, if it was just one or two people, then, yeah, we might look to those one or two people and say, well, maybe you didn't really make the right choices. But when this is happening to millions upon millions upon people, we have to start looking at the actual system itself, the structures that are actually causing people to get into this difficulty. And then when younger people actually talk about these kinds of things, then like the older my like parents' generation will be like, ugh, these entitled millennials. But like actually they got fucked also. Well, they did, but also they had, I mean, a lot of people in the baby boomer generation, a lot of the reasons why they don't understand this because they lived in a really different economy. Many people could have one person working and support the household. They had uh, much sort of steadier long-term jobs. They could count on steady increases in their wages over time. And, you know, they were able to sort of buy a house. Education was a lot more affordable. You know, all of these things are radically different now. Where does the uh, U.S.'s obsession with avoiding debt come from? 
Well, I don't. I mean, this is interesting, right? Um, because I don't think there's there's overall an obsession with avoiding debt. I think there's just a totally contradictory messages about debt. So if you're, you know, an ordinary person, right? There's there you're getting two simultaneously conflicting messages. One says take on debt right now, uh, take it on to pay for your college education. The more expensive, the better. Go to NYU take on debt to buy a house or you're just making poor financial decisions as a renter, right? There's all this pressure to take on debt and it's you're sort of legitimately taking it on in the sense that if you take it on, it looks like you're making a sound financial decision for your future. Yet, the minute you can't pay back that debt, right, uh, you sort of lose your moral virtue, you're a loser, right? Uh, like, why did you take on all that debt if you couldn't afford to pay it back? So there's these completely contradictory messages that people are somehow supposed to perfectly negotiate, you know, in a situation where, you know, there's more competition for jobs than ever, many jobs are low-paying, you know, the cost of health care and and education has and housing has skyrocketed so it becomes this very sort of impossible to win situation but then it's also like you're not working hard enough like do you think that there's like any connection between working hard enough and economic prosperity in our current situation uh no i mean not really if for, maybe for a few people so look i mean if you look at if you look at sort of the distribution of income right the wealthy people uh got their money from their parents and the poor people their wages have if they've ever been linked to working hard which i'm not really sure they are they certainly haven't been linked to working hard for the past 40 years you know if we look at wages they haven't been pegged to productivity or inflation for a long time because now, it's in the company's best interest to pay you the least amount yeah for sure now there are a few there are some small segments of the kind of professional class uh, you know, doctors, some lawyers, some people in the tech industry, where you do still see that kind of classic relationship between hard work and getting ahead. And that's the kind of people that are held up, right, as the example. People like Bill and Melinda Gates and, you know, Oprah Winfrey, Sheryl Sandberg, um, John Mackey, who's the CEO of Whole Foods. You know, these kinds of people really kind of frame the way we think about these kind of social problems and, and how to solve those problems. But you can work 80 hours a week at Target and you're never going to get ahead. Right. And then, But then you're shamed. Then people are like, you're not working hard enough. That's why you haven't paid off your college debt. That's why you're doing this. That's why you live at home because you don't work hard enough. Yeah, and it's, that's a total lie. I mean, and it really causes people a lot of agony because they feel like, oh, I'm just not making the, the right choices. And there's such a double standard. So if you think about the messages that individuals receive about debt and compare that to the messages that, like, corporations receive about debt, they're completely different. So corporations, you know, operate on a day-to-day business, say a company like General Motors, by constantly borrowing from the, from the financial markets, the capital markets, and that's how they work every single day. And if they take on too much debt, all they have to do is declare bankruptcy, right, which is now a totally acceptable form of restructuring. And it's considered, <laughs> yeah, it's considered totally smart business for them to, you know, not pay their workers the pensions that workers had paid into for 30 years, not pay them the health care that they had, you know, been promised by their uh, employer and, you know, pay off the banks, of course. But you see, there's this total double standard when it comes to debt. 
at the end of one of your pieces, uh, you write, if we're going to get through this crisis, we need to tell different stories, stories that don't glorify docility and subservience, stories that don't confuse personal troubles with public issues. And this is kind of what what we've been talking about this whole interview. Um, what are the kinds of stories that we should be telling? I wrote that piece because I don't know if you remember this, but a couple of years ago, Chrysler had these series of ads called, uh, um, they're imported from Detroit, sort of. Uh, a series of commercials. Uh, and they were super popular. The first one played at the Super Bowl. It had Eminem in it, and it was talking about sort of how, you know, Detroit sort of got through its crisis, and it's going to be great again. I got a question for you. What does this city know about luxury? Huh? What does a town that's been to hell and back know about the finer things in life? Well, I'll tell you, more than most. You see, it's the hottest fires that make the hardest steel. Add hard work and conviction, and the know-how that runs generations deep in every last one of us. That's who we are. That's our story. And they had a series of other ads, too, which were basically talking about, you know, this is right after the financial crisis, and they're talking about how America, you know, we've seen crisis before, and we're going to get through it. And the way that they kept, you know, these series of ads, the way they kept telling people to get through it all was just to, like, keep your head down, don't complain, dig in, work harder at your job, and, and you know, this is how we're going to get through it. And, and I talk about these as stories because they really are, in the sense, right, if we create little, you know, vignettes and tiny stories of, uh, you know, the hockey player just working hard and the young couple not asking their parents for money and working harder, it's like these kinds of stories are really toxic because, again, they're constantly pointing the blame back at the individual and and telling the individual, don't complain about the fact that you're working six jobs and you can't pay your rent. You know, exactly. Don't and then nobody riots and nobody changes anything yeah. and nobody marches and nobody. Exactly. Ugh. So one part of it is putting different ideas out there and legitimating different stories, right? Telling different stories. And if we look at the history of the United States, there are so many you know, stories of people not just saying yes to the status quo, right? There are so many stories of people just standing up and saying, no, this is this is BS. Like, this is not our fault, and we want something better. We want something different. You know, we can think about the bread and roses strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts, right? We can think, if we want to think about the 80s, right, we can look at ACT UP. In 2012, the Chicago Teachers Union just, you know, went out on strike for the first time in like 30 years or more saying this is this is enough. We're not going to take it anymore. I mean, these are the kinds of stories that we should be telling to remind people that they're not alone. Right. One of the things that uh, the kind of moral frameworks that are dominant today is they try to keep everybody sort of isolated and their struggles individualized when they're not. We're experiencing the same kind of troubles and struggles in our life. So this was a very dense episode for me and probably for you because I had to do so much research before these interviews and I I barely knew what I was talking about and I felt very stupid. But I couldn't figure it out without asking the questions. I felt 
a little embarrassed to ask some of them, but at the same time, these were both amazing interviews where I learned so much about personal responsibility and progressive responsibility. And I mean, I'm about to go buy a tinfoil hat and like become a conspiracy theorist, but I also still have a Bank of America account. I'm such a liberal in some capacities. And then with money, I just, I did never, I never questioned it. I didn't question it. I just did whatever they said. I just did whatever the bank said. I was just like, okay, sure. Also, a funny story is that my income level has changed a lot in the last year uh, to a terrifying amount because of a few projects. And I had to pay taxes recently and my taxes were very high. And I said to my comedy partner, Allison, oh my God, my taxes are out of control. Someone's got to do something about this. And then she was like, you've had money for one day and you're a Republican. (laughs) And I was like, fuck. I can't believe that it never occurred to me to extend this way of thinking that I have about other things to money and to the system. And now I'm freaking out. It's fine. We're all trapped in a capitalist system and then the people that are trying to get out of that system are mocked for doing so because they're young and because they maybe like to play the bongo drums. Unclear. Uh, It's fine. I need to lie down. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. And be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who live in large mansions that we can commandeer for our commune. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is Panoply's director of production. And Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. And our show art is by Cameron Glavin. I'm Gabby Dunn. See you next week for the season finale. Bye!